go to their classrooms. Well, if you weren't here last week, we kicked off our new sermon series for the season of Lent. We're going to be examining um, six parables that Jesus taught during his last week on earth before he was crucified. Um, Pastor Bob kicked us off last Sunday discussing the parable of the two sons. And in that is a story of two very different responses from the sons by a father who requested them to help work the family vineyard. It's a beautiful illustration as well of how a lot of times sinners understand aspects of the kingdom of God more so than religious people, especially even religious leaders. We also talked about how as believers we are good trees and therefore good fruit should come from our lives. God's desire is for us to bear fruit. And so today we're going to continue on with this kind of same dialogue by looking at the second parable. So go ahead and get your Bibles out. We're going to dive right into it. Um, Open up to Matthew chapter 21, verses 33 through 46. It should be page 897 if you're using a pew Bible. And this is a continuation of the story that we discussed last week. Same audience, same conversation. This is called the parable of the tenants. Matthew 21, starting in verse 33. Jesus said, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized the servants. They beat one, killed another, And stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, When the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched ending, they replied. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, Have you never heard, sorry, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. And given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. If you came to church today wanting a story of Jesus coming out guns blazing, this is it. He's coming in hot. He's not messing around here, okay? He is speaking some hard truth to his audience in this story. The parable last week kind of focused on how the Jewish priests and the Pharisees, they looked good on the outside, but on the inside, their hearts were removed from God. 
and they knew that he was talking about them. And so this parable is really just taking his point much further. He's literally pouring salt on an open wound, okay, to his audience in this parable, exposing the sinful hearts of the Jewish religious leaders. And this story gives great insight into Jewish history, the nation of Israel, and really just the hearts of all of humanity. So we have a landowner who planted a vineyard. The vineyard represents Israel. The landowner represents God. Very important to know that. And it says the landowner entrusts tenants to use his land while he moved away. It was a very common practice in ancient Israel. And he gave them everything that they could possibly need to succeed in working the vineyard. And really, this is exactly what God did for the Jews as a whole and for us as well, right? He gives us everything that we need in order to succeed. His word, his spirit, brothers and sisters. And so, in this particular story, it says the landowner buys a vineyard. He sets up a wine press. He builds a watchtower to offer protection for his land. And if the vineyard was being stewarded well by his tenants, it should produce excellent grapes that could then produce delicious wine that they could sell and make a lot of profit from. And the tenants in the story represent the Jewish religious leaders. They were set up well to produce fruit. God gave them everything that they needed to bear fruit. So keep that in mind. But we know that even though Jesus walked among the Jews for 33 years or so, taught them the truths of the kingdom, modeled to them how to live, how to love, how to set a Christ-like example, many of them still rejected him. And see, the religious leaders thought they could go about following God on their own terms, according to their own way, apart from surrendering their lives to him. And in return, they produced no fruit, and the fruit that they did produce was rotten. They produced rotten fruit. Their hearts were filled with greed, self-righteousness, and arrogance. So in this story, it says, Harvest time comes, and the landowner sends servants to his tenants to collect his portion of the fruit. And this is where things start to get really ugly. When I first read this parable, I'm like, what in the world? What am I going to talk about? This is bizarre. This is where things really go south, okay? So it says, the servants come to collect fruit. You know, for the landowner, he's the owner, he is in charge. And when they see the servants, the tenants kill them. It says they beat some, they stone some, some of them they even kill. So when the landowner finds out how they treated the first group of servants he sent, he sends sends more. Surely they'll make things right the second time. He sends even more servants to the tenants to collect his portion of the fruit. And they treated them the same way. They beat some, they stoned some, and they murdered some of the servants. And these rejected servants, this is really key, they represent God's prophets to Israel. The servants represent God's prophets to Israel. And the way the tenants treated the landowner's servants is the exact same way that Israel treated the prophets that God had sent them all throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. The prophet Jeremiah was beaten and tortured. Zechariah was stoned. Um, to death, John the Baptist was a New Testament prophet who actually literally had his head cut off for his faith and for proclaiming the good news. Those are just three examples. There are many more examples of Israel killing the prophets. And so maybe you're wondering, 
what in the world? Why? Why? What were they so offended about? Why was there such violent resistance? What is it about what they were trying to do or to communicate that led to such horrific acts? And here's why. They were calling out the sinfulness in people's hearts, and the people didn't want to hear it. Anybody relate to that? Someone calling out the sinfulness in your heart, and you didn't want to hear it. These prophets told them to turn from their wicked ways, to repent and believe, to stop worshiping false idols, to stop living for themselves, to start living for the Father. And they wanted nothing to do with their message, not Israel, not the tenants. They liked living on their own terms. They loved their greed and their self-centeredness, their comfortable life. They enjoyed being the boss and thinking that they could call the shots. They liked being in control. And so when something or someone came along that threatened that sense of control or threatened their comfortable life, they had to stop it. It had to be put to an end, so they went to the extreme. Murder. They silenced the voices of those that offended them with truth. So when the landowner finds out that his second group of servants that were sent were treated this way, he decides to send his son to the tenants to collect fruit. He gives them another invitation. Sound familiar? Through sending his son. And Jewish law, the, the story doesn't say it, but Jewish law at this time stated that if there were no children to the landowner, if there were no successors, then by law that land became um, owned by the people that possessed it. So the tenants knew, ooh, if we take this guy out, we're going to get this property. Or so they thought. So the son is sent, and we know how that plays out. Greed took over the hearts of the tenants the second they laid eyes on the landowner's son. And just like Israel killed God's son, the tenants killed the landowner's son. And Jesus is using this parable. It sounds, it's really graphic. But it's actually a beautiful picture of his extravagant love and just relentless pursuit of us. He kept sending messengers to the religious leaders to speak truth to them, but they continually refused to hear it. They refused to turn their hearts to Jesus. And just like the rejected prophets, Jesus becomes the rejected son of the landowner. And this point alone makes this parable very timely because within Less than a week of Jesus sharing this story, he was actually going to be killed by the very people that he was speaking to in this moment. So it's a very timely parable. He's being prophetic in a lot of ways. And when Jesus came to Israel in the first century, his, his life, his example, what he modeled, what he asked of people, didn't set well with a lot of them, right? A lot of people walked away. A lot of his followers, followers eventually walked away. It especially didn't set well with the religious leaders. The manner in which he asked them to serve didn't jibe with the narrative that they wanted their lives to be about. He told them, you guys need to love your enemies. That's nonsense, right? Pray for those who wrong you. Nah, an eye for an eye, right? It didn't jibe well with them. They wanted to live on their own terms rather than submit to his authority and lordship. And so just like they treated 
the rejected servants, Jesus now becomes the rejected son. So now we come to the part of this parable where it gets interesting. And this is where his listeners start to realize what he's actually saying. He roped them in, man. He's got them hooked at this point. And this is when they start to realize a little bit what he's saying. So he asked them, so what do you think the landowner will do to these tenants? Here it is. This is, this is Jesus. So therefore, when the landowner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. And this is the moment where everything changes. It's hard for us to see it. It's not really that vivid, but this is where everything changes. This is where the light bulbs start to go off, okay, into his audience. They start to get what he's saying. You see, up until this point, this story would have sounded absurd and ridiculous to any Jewish listener. Because the law basically said that the law that they were devoted to basically said, if you killed someone, you deserve to be killed. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Up until this point, the tenants had killed multiple people, right? So they all deserve death. All of these people need to be eliminated. That's why put those wretches to an end. And by making that statement, the religious leaders declared judgment on themselves. They realized that he was speaking to them. Judgment has come upon them because they rejected God, his messengers, and his son. And you can just picture their response in this moment, right? Oh, he's talking about us. This guy's using this stupid story to cast judgment on us. He's making us put judgment on ourselves. He's talking about us. We are the religious elite of Israel. Who does this insignificant man possibly think that he is to cast condemnation on us? He must be stopped. We will not tolerate this. We must silence him. We have to make a plan to take this guy out. And then Jesus gives them the ultimate gut punch. He doesn't even stop. He, he, he keeps bringing it to them. He makes the story even more personal by telling his audience what's going to happen to them. Yeah, verse 43 here. He says, Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Guys, Jesus is hitting them with so much hard truth right now that their blood pressure would have been off the charts, okay? He's throwing more punches than Rocky Balboa in all the movies combined, okay? He's bringing it. I'm not a boxer at all. I have no form or anything. He's bringing it, okay? It's, this would have been like, oh, I mean, you would have just wanted to crawl into a hole if you were his audience, okay? He says the kingdom of God was going to be taken away from them. Can you imagine hearing that when in your eyes you are the top of the food chain when it comes to spiritual guidance, spiritual wisdom? He says you're going to miss out on everything. You're not going to experience any of the kingdom. It will be taken away from you. And here's why. Because you didn't produce fruit. The kingdom of God will be taken away from you, religious leaders, because you did not bear fruit. You see, God, the landowner in this story, is an incredible steward of his vineyard, of his property. See, he, you know, he has this land, and then he goes away. He doesn't micromanage anything or anyone. It says he moves away. He left his tenants set up with everything that they could possibly need 
to succeed in the winemaking process. <clears throat> oh, sorry, I lost my place here. <coughs> but just like any good landowner, he still wanted to collect his fruit. He expected fruit to come from his tenants. And this is where it ties in really well with Bob's sermon last week, um, where he showed that God's desire for our lives is that we bear fruit. He longs for spiritual fruit to come from our lives. He wants his love and goodness and kindness to ooze from our lives through anyone that we come into contact with, right? He wants us to serve those in need, to lay our life down for others, to help them through our generosity, our service, our stewardship. We must bear fruit. Think about this. This is kind of interesting. If you think of any Christian church that's been planted for the past 2,000 years, it doesn't matter where that church exists or maybe did exist several hundred years ago, North America, Europe, Asia, God wants to know for every specific church, where's the fruit? Where's my fruit? Where is the fruit coming from your lives? I, I want to see it in the lives of your people. And he's given us everything that we need, right? He's given us people, resources in some instances like us, a building, right? Even a house on top of that. He's giving us his Holy Spirit to live inside of us, to guide us into truth. That's the ultimate gift. He wants to know where is the fruit. And my question I want to ask you guys is why? And I want to get some feedback. Why do you think God cares so much that we as his people produce good fruit? So the floor's open. What do you guys think? Why does he care so much that fruit comes from our lives? What do you guys think? Why is this so important to him? Yes. He gave his ultimate son for all of us. He gave us everything. So why can't we just do something in return? Sure. Yeah, he gave us everything in his son. So the least we can do is bear fruit. Yeah, that, that represents him. Good. What else? Any other thoughts? Yes, Dave. Yeah, that's really good. So he says Jesus doesn't walk among the earth right now, right? We are his hands and feet. We are those that represent him. So by bearing fruit, we're pointing people to him. And yeah, doing his mission, his work. Yeah, that's good. Anything else? Sam. Yeah, yeah, she's saying, you know, when we do things like lay down our lives for others, it makes us closer to him. Yeah, they're, they're forbearing fruit. Yeah, that's great. Anyone else? Did you have something? I thought I saw. Jesus is the vine, and we're the branches. Mm-hmm. So, like, if we're not bearing fruit, we're just Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're about, yeah, Jesus is the vine, we are the branches. So if we're not bearing fruit, 
What are we doing, right? Good. Great stuff. God wants us to produce fruit because fruit is evidence that we care about the same things that the Father cares about. I mean, that could kind of sum up a lot of what we're saying. The Father cares about us loving people because he loves them deeper than we could ever fathom. If we care about the things that the Father cares about, then our heart should break for the lost, right? Our heart should break for those that are perishing that don't know Jesus and their eternities. That should crush us. That should break our hearts and make us pray and pursue them. God wants our lives to overflow with his joy and love and goodness because those traits are true reflections of his heart and it's fruit that gives evidence to the world that we care about the same things that the Father cares about. And the tenants in this story failed to produce fruit because they rejected the Son and everything that he stood for. Think about, just think for a minute about uh, the winemaking process. This is a very you know, familiar analogy, especially in the New Testament. You know, if you make new wine and you put it into new wine skin, during the fermentation process, the skin starts to stretch a little bit. I don't know if we have any wine experts here. But that's why it says you can't pour new wine into old wine skin because it would make it would stretch too much. It would bur- it would be too brittle. It would crack. It would burst. You know, whatever word you want to use there, it doesn't work that way. You can't put new wine into old wine skin. And that's the same reason why Jesus told Nicodemus, "Hey man, you have to be born again. You have to start over." The way that you think this is isn't really the way that it works at all. It has to have a new start. You must be born again through the Spirit. And in the same way, Jesus is saying the kingdom of God doesn't, it doesn't work that way. You can't take Jesus' picture of the kingdom and make it work with this old way of operating that you think works. And that's why the Jewish leaders, they believe their own righteous deeds kind of earned them favor with God. But Jesus telling them, it doesn't matter. I don't care what kind of religious activities you have. If I am not the sinner, it's pointless. It's meaningless. You can be generous. You can go to church. You can serve others. But if Christ is not at the center of it, you've completely missed the point. If you don't understand your need for a Savior, you've missed everything. And God is the master landowner. And he set up a wine press in this story because he expects us to bear fruit but how many times do we try to create our own little kingdom with our own little set of rules create a version of Christianity that we kind of fit into this comfortable lifestyle this convenient life that works well for us that doesn't demand too much of us of our time of our energy of our money It's easy to focus on the parts of Scripture that call us blessed, right? We can rejoice in that. Boy, it's a lot easier to glance over the parts of Scripture where where they say, die. Die to yourself. Lay down your life. Serve others. Humble yourself. Sacrifice. It's a lot easier to glance over those. And we like to do it our way in our pride, our arrogance, our selfishness. But the owner set up the vineyard, right? He knows how it works. God knows how this Christian life is to be lived. He calls the shots, not us. And there have been many times in my life where I have been a tenant. I've been one of these tenants, okay? I was the good Christian boy that did the right things, went to church, 
led Bible studies, served in this community when there was a need. And I did all the good things while my heart was completely unmoved. I did all these good things, but my heart was completely unmoved by what God had done. And growing up, I was taught if I did X, Y, Z, then, hey, man, you're living right, Justin. Pray, go to church, give. You're doing good. And I did all the right things. And my heart was completely unmoved by the goodness of God. I didn't take time to understand what my sin cost his son. I didn't take time to mourn my sin and understand my need for a Savior. I looked good on the outside, but my heart was removed from God's truth that I was hearing about and even teaching about. God wants nothing more than for our hearts to be fully alive in him. He wants nothing more than for our lives to be fully, our hearts to be fully alive in him. And for too many years, I have settled for much less than that. So I'm a work in progress. That's what I'm telling you guys. And all of us, no matter who we are, where we come from in life, we can relate to a couple different people. We can relate to a couple different parables in this story. If you are a believer, then you are like one of the servants in this story. You're a prophet. You might not feel like a prophet, but you are God's messenger. Okay, think of it in that term. You are a messenger of God. God has given you a message to be shared. He wants you to share your story of what he's done in your life to the people around you. He wants you to share his good news to your neighbors and coworkers and classmates and friends. And guess what? Sometimes we will be rejected, right? Sometimes we will be rejected. Sometimes we'll extend invitations to people to come to church or to engage them in conversation about God, and they'll just roll their eyes at us. We might not experience physical violence here in America, but we will be rejected. We'll be mocked and ridiculed by those who are unable, unopen at the time, to see their great need for grace. Sometimes in our lives, we'll identify with the tenants. We'll be going about our business, and God sends us a messenger. Has God ever sent you a messenger to speak some truth in your life to people? Thank you. There we go. Seven or eight now. Okay. Seven or eight people here in our church. Okay. That messenger could be a parent. It could be a trusted Christian friend, a ministry leader, a mentor. It could also be someone that you wouldn't choose. Like, this guy, that girl, you're going to send her to me, right? Think about the Jews. They didn't accept Jesus because he didn't look like anything what they thought the Messiah would be. This poor dude from an insignificant town, he didn't fit the mold of what they thought the Messiah should be, what the Messiah should look like. So God's messengers can take many forms, okay, many different forms, but their purpose is to speak truth to us that we desperately need to hear. So maybe one of those conversations goes like this. Maybe a trusted friend pulls you aside and says, hey, you know what? You know I love you, but there's something I got to talk with you about. I've been observing you the past several months, and it seems as though you're not really believing the best about people. You seem to think a lot of people are out to get you. What's going on there? 
You seem to think people aren't as supportive of you or as appreciative of the things that you do. I'm just wondering, what's at the root of that? Can we talk about that? Would you be open to talk about that with me as a friend? And man, if you, if you don't have a friend like that in your life, find one, okay? Pursue one. Ask somebody to be that. Ask God to send somebody like that to you who will shoot you straight and speak that kind of truth to you. And when a messenger approaches us with a word like that, that's just one example. It could be 500 other examples of whatever it might be you're dealing with that they notice. We have two options. We can lean into what they're saying, right? Humble ourselves and say, man, God, what do I need to learn from this? Whew, that was not fun to hear, but I want to change. I want to repent. That's the recommended option. Or we can reject them, right? We can say, yeah, cool story, man, and walk off. Or say, you know what, that's just stupid. That's nonsense. I'm too busy. I don't have time to deal with that. I don't want to hear that. I'm not messing with that right now. Maybe I'll come back to it at another time. Probably not. Right? We can reject their words. We can start to isolate ourselves from that person. Right? Start being cold towards them. Ignoring their calls. Their messages. Avoiding them at church. Avoiding them in public places. You guys know what I'm talking about. And guys, as we come to the communion table today here in a few minutes, we have to ask ourselves the question at the center of this parable. And it's this. What will we do with the son? God's asking you, what will you do with my son? And I'm asking you, what will you do with Jesus? Will you reject him or submit to his lordship? Will you keep choosing to live life on your own terms in a way that's convenient for you? Or will you choose to follow his steps, the way of downward mobility, the way of service, the way of giving your life away for the sake of others? When God sends messengers into your life to speak truth to you, will you reject them or will you listen to what they say? Will you be open to change even though it will require a lot of reflection and repentance. And we are week two in our season of, of the season of Lent of our Sunday mornings. And Lent is a season, it is a time of repentance. Is the posture of your heart one of repentance? Is that the posture of your heart? Are you aware of what your sin cost the Son? Do you understand that? You might be thinking, I didn't kill Jesus. Just, I didn't throw him out of the vineyard. And you can maybe try to make that argument, I guess, if you wanted. But one thing that none of us can argue with is this. We've all killed him in our hearts more times than we can count by choosing to do things our own way. We've all killed him in our hearts more times than we can count by choosing to do things our way. How many times have you crushed the nudging of the Spirit, leading you to do something? You said, nah, that's too risky, too demanding. I'm not going there. I don't have time for that. How many times have you rejected, have we rejected a messenger that God sent us that spoke some truth to us that we needed to hear? How many times has God nudged you to talk to someone who started going off, man? They needed somebody to point them back, and you said, nah. That could be awkward. 
I'm afraid of how that conversation could go. I don't want to rock the boat. I'm going to play things safe. It's a lot to wrestle here, guys. A lot of takeaways from this story. So I hope you guys will, um, just during this time of silence, whatever might stand out in any of that, just let this be a time between you and God to kind of hash that out, okay, and see what he has for you. I'm going to pray for us, and then our ushers are going to come uh, dismiss you each by row. You can come forward, just take a piece of the bread and dip it in the juice, and we also have gluten-free option if you need that as well. Let's pray together.